Mark chapter 10. We're going to continue our study of the book of Mark this morning. And let's uh, go to the Lord and ask Him to bless our time together. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank You for gathering us this morning. Thank You that we still live in a country where we can do that openly. And Lord, I just pray for churches across America this morning that Your Word would be heard. I pray that we would understand this portion that we have this morning that You have for us as we study it. And Lord, as we, as we meet openly, uh, we pray for those around the world who cannot do that, who have to uh, meet underground because it's uh, illegal or uh, extremely dangerous to meet openly. And, and I, I just pray for them as well. And I thank you, Lord, that, uh, that they are so invested in following you that they're continuing to take that risk. Lord, I pray that as we learn this morning about following you, that we would be complete in our dedication to you as well. That we would follow you as you have called us to in your word. Lord, if there's anybody in here that does not know you this morning, I pray that they get questions answered. And if they get to the end of a service and it's still wonder, I pray that they would reach out to a friend or a family member who can explain to you the gospel. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would draw them and that they would enter into a relationship with you. For those of us, Lord, who are in that relationship with you, I just pray that it would be growing deeper each and every day. Not just in our knowledge of your word, but in our doing of your word. Let us never be just hearers, Lord, but let us be doers. Let us live for you in obedience. Thank you for this body of Christ that you've placed us in. Thank you for our brothers and sisters. Help us to love each other well as we love you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Mark chapter 10, continuing in our study of here. As I studied this passage this week, I really had to kind of ask myself, so I'm going to ask you, how do I define success? How do you define success? You know, as good red-blooded Americans, we often get very wrapped up around success, and we oftentimes tie success to material things. So it's good to ponder, how do you define success? Trophies or awards? Those are good things. Career accolades, promotions, family stability, having the most toys. You know, life is short. He with the most toys wins. You subscribe to that mentality. How about the number of followers on social media? The number of likes you got on your last post? For those of us who are parents, does the answer to that question change when you think about your children? How do, you, how do you define your children's success? What do you want your children to grow up? How would you 
consider the, when would you consider them as being successful? Again, we're kind of enamored with success in this country, in our meritocracy. We buy books, we listen to podcasts by the hundreds, by those people who are successful, that have status in our society, that have the million followers. So we listen to them to try to glean the secrets of success. We're taught from a very early age to measure ourselves against our past selves or against other people to see if we're getting more successful, to see if we're improving. And, and if we're not, we're taught to come up with a 5, 10, 20-year plan. Make the right goals so you can get where you want to be. And we're not immune to it in the body of Christ. How many of us, when we're talking to somebody that goes to another church, try to get those subtle hints to find out if our church is doing better than their church? How many of you, when you come to Del Rio Bible Church on Sunday mornings, want to go straight to the back of the bulletin to look at the financial statement to see how successful we are or not? Well, in Mark this morning, Jesus is teaching the disciples and us. He's turning worldly views of success on their head. He's trying to change our worldview so we don't look at success in that way. Now, none of those things in and of themselves are bad. Unless that's where your focus is. Jesus' disciples had a different idea of what the Messiah should do than what Jesus was doing. And he's continually in this last half of Mark changing their view of who the Messiah is, what the Messiah is here to do, and oh, by the way, what it means to follow him. Because remember, as we've gone through Mark, we've heard over and over and over again, follow me, follow me, follow me. What does follow me mean? And this morning we're going to see that our worldly ideas of success and status need to be changed. Mark chapter 10. We're going to pick it up in verse 28. It says, Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and, they, and will deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and scourge him, and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. So we've got to remember the context. You know, Joe and Chris and I, by necessity, we take a, a passage and we preach on it. And the next week we take a passage and we preach on it. And the next week we take a passage and preach on it. And we have to do that because I don't think we could get you guys to stay here for the roughly 
six weeks straight that it would take us to get through Mark. Okay, you guys have lives, you have other things to do, so we have to break it up. But it's important to remember that this flows, this, this part flows directly from what Chris preached last week, and it's going to flow directly into what Joe preaches next week. The book of Mark is a whole, and although we take it in sections, we have to remember that it's a flowing argument. Okay, it's a flowing argument. So if you remember last week, Chris was really emphasized that when we follow Jesus, we have to depend on him. Okay, dependence on God is, is a key. Just as a child depends on its parents, so must we depend on God when we follow Jesus. And then we had the example of the rich, man, rich young man that didn't want to do that. Okay? He wanted to follow the checklist. Hey, all these things I've done. He wanted to follow the checklist and have God bless him for following the checklist instead of depending on God. I'd say we get in that mindset sometimes. When Jesus challenged him with what was most important to him and said, leave, sell all your possessions and follow me, he said, eh. he left grieved because he couldn't do it. Because his possessions were more important to him than following God. So directly on the heels of that discussion, hey, leave everything and follow me, Jesus tells the rich young man. And the rich young man says, no. Peter pipes up. He's gotten brave again. The last time he, he piped up, he kind of got smashed down a little bit. And we're going to look at that. But he's brave again. And he says in verse 28, Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. The rich man ruler wasn't, the rich young man wasn't uh, willing to leave everything, but we have left everything and followed you. And the parallel passages uh, in Matthew and Luke tell us that he adds, What then will there be for us? So, in other words, we have left everything. What will we get? What will we get? And Jesus answers that question. What will there be for us? This is a continuation of the teaching. Remember, uh, the first half of Mark was who is Jesus? Jesus was proving who he was, that he is the Messiah, that he is the long-awaited one. They finally make the profession in chapter 8. And then right after that uh, profession, let's go back to, to 8.32. Um, Right after that profession, and they, uh, he says, who do people say I am? Remember, they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and he, Peter says, hey, you are the Christ. And then Jesus teaches them what that means. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. This is verse 31, sorry. Uh, rejected by the elders and killed, and after three days rise again. That's the first time that he started teaching them, yes, I'm the Messiah, this is what it means. And he's changing their mindset and through the whole back part of, of Mark, he's changing it. And this morning, he's changing it on status, on being first, on being last. But that's the first time in Mark that Jesus tells them what, what that means. And Peter immediately, he says, he took him aside and began to rebuke him. No, you're the Messiah. That can't be what it means. And Jesus says what? Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. In other words, you want to follow me according to your interest. I want you to follow me. And he goes on and he summons the multitude and his disciples in, chapter, or in verse 34 and says, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So 8.31, Jesus started teaching them. This is a continuation of that teaching. A continuation of that teaching. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And Peter rightly says, we've left everything to follow you. We've left everything to follow you. We have done what the rich young man was unwilling to do. And Jesus is going to teach them that with Jesus, you always get more than you give up. Again, with Jesus, you always get more than you give up. We've left everything for you. And Jesus answers in 29. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Nobody who has left all that stuff won't receive a hundred times more. But why did you leave the stuff? Notice what it says, for my sake and for the gospel's sake. You have to have left it for God and for other people. If, you left, if, if your motivation for leaving all your stuff behind is because Jesus said he'll give you a hundred times more, if your motivation is I'm going to leave it so I can get, guess what? You're not going to get your motivation has to be for God, for His sake. Follow me, Jesus has told us over and over again. If you leave everything to follow me, and oh, by the way, if you leave everything to tell others about me, to spread the gospel, the good news that you're learning, that the disciples are learning now, you leave it, you leave it for those two reasons, you're going to get a hundred times what you've left. Well, that can be tough because I don't know, maybe you have. I know I have. I have heard people preach that, see, whatever you give up, if you give up a house, you're going to get a hundred of them. You'll have a house in the Hamptons. You'll have a house in Bermuda. You can have a house in the Rockies. You can have a house on the beach somewhere. But Jesus isn't talking about material blessings. He's changing their mindset. Remember, they grew up under the law. And in the law, you had what? If you obeyed God, you got what? Blessings. If you disobeyed God, you got what? Curses, right? Back to Deuteronomy 28, and you can read all about that stuff. So that's how they grew up. They t Chris talked about that last week. When they saw the rich young ruler, rich young man, they thought, man, he must be doing what God told him to do because look how successful he is. We see people that have more material success than we may. And we go, man, if I could just do what they're doing, I could get that. They must be doing it right. And Jesus is turning that on their head. Because we love to be over here. We love to go, hey, if I just do the right thing, God's going to bless me. He's going to bless me with material stuff. He's going to bless me with this. And this other person in my church, they've got more than I do, so they must be doing the right thing. We love to be over here and say, God, I'm going to do the right thing. Bless me, bless me, bless me. But how many of us want to stand over here? And every time you disobey God, get curses. 
Not many of us want to stand up and be on this side. We only want to be on that side without ever thinking that when we disobey God, we'll be over here. And guess what? We all disobey God. Fortunately, that's not the system we're under, and that's what Jesus is doing to the disciples. He's changing their mindset. He's turning it on their head and showing them. So if he doesn't mean material blessing, what does he mean? Well, a passage we've already studied is very helpful to that. If we go back to Mark chapter 3, 31 through 35, we see much the same language. And remember, this is when Jesus is, is there and, and his mother, it's 31, it says, his mother and his brothers arrived and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. And a multitude was sitting around him and they said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering them, he said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about on those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus is saying, you may give up everything for me. And we don't see that a lot in America, okay? Because we're still in a, in a country where if you tell your parents that you're following Jesus, they're probably not going to disown you. Okay, there are parts of the world where that is exactly what happens. Okay, and throughout history that has happened. So we have a hard time seeing that here. But Jesus is saying, if you follow me, because you have to give up everything, I want you to give up everything to follow me. When you do that, you're going to get a hundred times more. You're going to become part of the body of Christ. And look at all the brothers and sisters and mothers that you have just in this room. And those of you who are in the military or the border patrol or whatever and have moved around a lot, you understand this. Because as a Christian, when you get to some place and you don't know anybody and you go to church, you have a whole bunch of people saying, hey, welcome, great to have you here. And you tell them your needs and they try to, they, you know, hey, do you need a place to stay? Do you need a car to borrow? Do you need whatever? We take care of each other. We're called to take care of each other. So you know you've experienced that. So that's what Jesus is saying. Hey, you're going to be part of the body of Christ. And you're going to have all these mothers, brothers, sisters. You're going to have access to other homes, to other land. Because guess what? The disciples were traveling around and were they working everywhere they went? No, their work was to spread the gospel and to learn from Jesus. They were being supported from other people. They were being supported from other people. So truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. We get to be part of the body of Christ, so we gain way more than we could ever give up because with Jesus, you always get more than you have to give up. I want us to notice a couple of things here, though. There's something on the list of things we gain, or sorry, there's something that's not on the list of things we gain that was on the list of things we gave up. Okay. Things we gave up was house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, or farms. Things we gain, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children, and farms. What's not there? Father. Father's is not there. I don't want to make too much out of it because I don't think, you know, but, but I think the reason, I think that's actually intentional. I think Father's not there because we have one Father, right? You can go read Matthew 
23.9 on that. We have one Father, Father, our Father in heaven, and He's the only Father we need. We don't need hundreds of other fathers. There are two things on the list of stuff that we get that we didn't give up. And one that's obvious is eternal life, and we'll talk about that here shortly. But the other one is one that doesn't doesn't lend itself too well to a salesman message. He shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions. Wait a minute. Did Jesus just say that I'm going to have a hundred times more persecution now than I did before I came to Christ? Um, yeah, yeah, that's what he said, along with persecutions. And again, this is part of that mindset change, that we look at somebody who apparently has no problems in the world and we think they've got it made. And we look at somebody who's struggling and we think, wow, they're, they're, they're the lowly. The one who hasn't made, they have status, they have everything. The person who's struggling and going through difficult times, they must really be doing something wrong. On a very personal note, when Jan and I were much younger and struggling with infertility, I actually had a person come up to me and say, I think God may be cursing you because you're not in obedience to him. And I have to say, he, I mean, I, I tried to take that in stride and go, well, I have examined my life and looked at sin and stuff, but we will have trials just for following Jesus. We do have trials for things, bad things that we do, but we will have trials just for following Jesus. And that doesn't preach real well in a seeker I, we got to get a salesman message. You know, i got to sell you the gospel. I'm not going to tell you, oh, wait, oh, by the way, you're going to get 100 times what you give up, including persecutions. When was the last time you went to buy a new car, or a new car to you, maybe a used car, and the person said, man, this car is fantastic. It is, man, it's got leather seats, it's heated, it's cooled, it gets great gas mileage, it's got electric windows up and down, it's got videos for your kids, it's got all that stuff. And oh, by the way, it's also going to cost you a bundle more than what the sticker price says. Because it's going to cost you this much in insurance, and it's going to cost you this much in upkeep. And you're going to be spending money on it all the time, and it's, gonna, it's a Jaguar, so it's going to be in the shop constantly. <laughs> that doesn't sell real well, so they don't go on that side of it. But Jesus is being very honest with us. Hey, what you get is always better than what you give up with me, but you are going to get persecution. And that's a consistent teaching through the New Testament. God tells us many times that one of the things we get for following him are persecutions, sufferings, trials. And that's a gargantuan mindset change, not just for the first century Jews, but for the 21st century Americans. You mean I'm going to have troubles? How on earth am I going to tell anybody about the gospel if I have to tell them that it's going to be hard? 
Can I just say if they accept Jesus, everything will be fine? Their whole life will be better and perfect? That's a much better message than if you accept Jesus, you're going to have sufferings. You're going to have trials. But that's exactly what he tells us. First, or not first, there's only one. Philippians 1 uh, is a great passage that tells us, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Man, it's been granted to us. It's been given to us to believe in him and also to suffer for his sake. God spends a lot of time in the New Testament trying to change our thoughts about persecutions and how bad they are. 1 Peter 4, if you can turn to 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. And if you don't get there, don't worry, I will read it. Starting in verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised. But Peter emphasizes the key principle regarding suffering for Christ as he goes on, and that's rejoice in our suffering. He says in 13, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that you... Or so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of God rests on you. Again, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, not for misbehaving, but for the name of Christ. 15, he says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian... He is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. It's a tough thing to wrap our brains around, but we need to. Jesus tells us in Mark that we'll get a hundred times. You've left everything for me to follow me. And you'll get a hundred times what you left, including persecutions. Jesus told us in, 16, in, in Luke, or sorry, in uh, John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. He wants us to have peace, not because things are easy. He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Becoming a Christian doesn't make your life easy. Jesus never tells us that it will. As a matter of fact, it may make your life more difficult, but it's still better it still makes your life better and the only reason why we can say better because if, if you talk to somebody who's a non-believer they say how is your life better look at all these material possessions i've accumulated what have you got they don't understand that following god paul had way more joy following god and what he was doing after he came to christ than he did in all the persecuting that he was doing before. And we're going to look at that here in a little bit. Story in Acts chapter 5, you can look at it later, always amazes me and makes me think about myself and really look inward every time I read it. It's the story of when the disciples, uh, the apostles, remember they were, they were speaking in the name of Christ and they got taken before the Sanhedrin and told, don't speak in that name anymore. And they left and they said, we'll let you be the judge. Is it better for us to, to follow God or follow you? And they go out and they're preaching 
Jesus in the temple again. And then they get taken before the Sanhedrin again. And then they're flogged and released. Flogged, people. Not spanked. Flogged and released. And they leave all mopey. This Christian thing isn't working out for us very well. I guess we're going to have to find another line of work, something else to do, because we obviously can't speak in that name anymore. Anybody familiar with your Bible? Is that what they did? No. They left rejoicing that they were considered worthy enough to suffer for Christ's name. I don't know about you, but every time I read that, I'm going, okay, God, I've got some work to do. Because if I'm getting flogged, I'm going to have a hard time rejoicing that I'm worthy to suffer in Christ's name. But people, that's where the Bible tells us we've got to get to. That's where we should be. That's what it means to follow Jesus, to give up everything and follow Him. We get way more back than we give up, including persecutions. Then Jesus makes a comment. He says, many who are first will be last. This is back in Mark 10, 31. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And he doesn't really expand anymore on it there. He's going to, in next week's passage, Joe's going to get more a specific uh, application that he's going to expand more on it because the disciples just don't get it. But I think if you look in the context, because it seems like maybe it's a little out of place, but in the context of what we're looking at today and what we've studied, what he's saying is those who have all the status and are considered first are going to be last. And the last are first. Why is that? Because the other thing that wasn't in the list that we gave up, but is in the thing that in the list that we gain, was what? Eternal life in the age to come. Those who have all the status in this life and, and all the success by worldly standards, if they don't know Jesus, they got nothing. They're last. Those who suffer in this world, those who, who don't have all the worldly success because they're following Jesus in the age to come are going to be first. In the age to come are going to be first. Again, he turns our thoughts of success and status completely upside down. Because as Chris said last week, they would have looked at the rich young ruler and said, or the rich young man and said, he is a success. They would have looked at the disciples traveling around without a house, without a roof over their head and said, they are not successful. And Jesus is turning it upside down. He's saying, no, they're following me. They're successful. He's not following me. That isn't success. He may look like he's first now, he's going to be last. You may look like you're last now, you're going to be first. And then he gives us an example. Okay? And I don't want you to be confused by your study Bible. If you have a study Bible that has some sort of break between 31 and 32, you may think that we've moved on to something else. But we haven't. Jesus, as he often does, gives us an example of being last, but really being first. And the example is himself. For the third time in Mark, he teaches them what's going to happen to him. They were on the road going to Jerusalem. Remember, he's told them he's going to die. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed him were fearful. We're not exactly sure what they're amazed about. Maybe because he is so bravely going towards what he has told them is going to be his death. We're not told. That, that, that may be a possible... 
But we know that those who are following are a little fearful. So they're like, eh, we're not sure what's going to happen here. We're, not, uh, we're a little fearful. But in that context, he takes his 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen. He says, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. But three day, And three days later, he will rise again. Again, this is the third time in Mark he's told them what's going to happen. And he gives them more detail this time than he has before. That's pretty detailed. He's going to be betrayed to the scribes and the priests. They're going to condemn him to death. They're going to deliver him to the Gentiles, i.e. the Romans. They're going to mock him, spit on him, scourge him, kill him. Three days later, he will rise again. Look at the list of those things that are going to happen to him. Is that the list of somebody that, some things that you do to those who are first? Hey, the CEO of the company gets scourged and gets beaten and gets spit on. No. Those are a list of things that happen to the dregs of society. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you an example of being last. And then it's interesting because he kind of leaves it there. He does, other than he says, I will rise again, he doesn't talk here specifically in this passage about the glory of his resurrection and the glory of his coming again. He doesn't talk about that. He just kind of leaves it there and lets them chew on it, lets them think about it a little bit. But what he's saying here is, hey, I'm going to be betrayed, condemned, spit on, flogged. These things that only happen to the worst, to the last, are going to happen to me. And I'm going to raise again. In other words, you have left everything to follow me. I'm going to give everything for you. You get way more with Jesus than you ever give up. I, your Messiah, you've told me that you know I'm your Messiah and going to give everything for you. Although he doesn't present the positive side to his disciples, we're fortunate. We have the entire word of God. We know the rest of the story, right? We know the rest of the story. We know the gloriousness of the resurrection. We know that he's first in the resurrection, preeminent. We know that Jesus is first in all things. Look at Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 22. We know that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess he is Lord. Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11. We know that he's coming back in all of his power and glory. Book of Revelation, especially 19 onwards. We know that. Jesus gives us an example of, he says, hey, the first will be last, the last will be first. And oh, by the way, I'm your example. I'm going to go be last for you, but I will be first. I will be first. Before we conclude, I want to take just a little bit of time to look at this title that we've read several times this morning and through our study of Mark called Son of Man, because we haven't really taken a, a real in-depth look at that. This Son of Man, and verse 33, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him to the Gentiles. It's one of Jesus' favorite terms for himself, Son of Man. It's used 88 times in the New Testament. All but five of those are Jesus speaking of himself. Okay, we're not going to go over the five that aren't, uh, but all of them but five. Uh, you can ask me later. Uh, you can fill out a little piece of paper. Maybe I'll give you a prize if you get them all right, um, all, all five of those. But five, all but five are him using the term of himself. 
So what does he mean by telling, by using this term? And I, and I want to say many teachers, many preachers, many people will tell you that what he means, what he's claiming is he's claiming deity. Okay, son of man, that title is a claim to deity. It's, it's a claim uh, to be God. Uh, and, and that's mostly based on passages like Matthew 26, 63 to 66, and we'll get there shortly. And, and I understand that point of view and, and kind of see where they're coming from, but I tell you, I think that that is incomplete, at best incomplete, and it really robs us of the richness of the Word of God and what Jesus is doing uh, when he uses that term. So let's look at it a little bit. So how often did Jesus read the New Testament? Okay, I got some chuckles, so never, right? Because the New Testament was not around when Jesus was using the term, right? So he, he was using it. So we have to kind of go back to the Old Testament to look at what the Jewish would understand there from this term, the Old Testament use of, of this son of man. And, and it is used a bunch of times in the Old Testament, uh, over 100 times, 107, uh, according to somebody. I did not go count them, okay? Uh, 107 times, uh, 93 of those in Ezekiel alone, where Ezekiel is called the son of man, son of man, son of man, i.e. is human. And every single one, 106 out of 107 of those times, it simply means humanity. It is emphasizing that the person is human. We'll talk about the one exception shortly, but that's what it means. It emphasizes the humanity of the person. And I will tell you, I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing, is he's emphasizing his humanity because he knew that after he died and, and was gone and people were teaching and doctrine was coming up, that somebody was going to come up with the doctrine that Jesus didn't really come as a man. God wasn't really incarnate. He was just spiritual. He was spiritually here. He looked like a man, but he wasn't. Okay, so I think that Jesus is really emphasizing his humanity. But he's also doing something else. He's showing us, as, as, as the term morphs through his usage, he's showing that, that he is human, but that he's much more than human. You know, you'll hear people say that, that you know, the, the Jews didn't realize that the Messiah was going to be God, and that's true. But he shows through the message, through the use of this terms, that God had shown that that was going to happen, and, God, and Jesus appropriates this Son of Man uh, title throughout his ministry to show that I am human, but I am oh so much more than just a human. So that now when we look at that, we look at the Son of Man title and we go, oh, well, that means that uh, it's not just human, but it's more. And, and that's true. But they wouldn't have got there initially. They had to look at, at, at all of Jesus's ministry to see that. He gives hints throughout that, oh, the Son of Man, this human is a little more than just a man. Okay, throughout his ministry, he does that until he culminates with Matthew 26. Or, uh, yeah, Matthew 26. Before we get there, Turn to John 12, because I think this is really instructive, you know, because there are people who would completely disagree with me, and you may be one of them, and that's fine, because I just want to tell you our, the reasoning, show you the, the, what I went through to get there. So John chapter 12, this is Jesus' last public teaching. So he's towards the end of his ministry, okay? He's getting ready to, to go uh, do some private teaching with his disciples and then be betrayed and then, and then killed. Uh, and uh, we're going to be in, in 20 through uh, 36, but I'm, we're, gonna, we're not going to read the whole thing. In 23, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Okay, there's that term again, son of man. He then goes through some other stuff and he gets down to 33 uh, or 32 and he says, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And then John tells us that he was in 33, he says, but he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. And oh, by the way, the Jews understood that. They understood that. Because look what they do. 34. The multitude therefore answered him. We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So again, they've been taught that the Christ is going to remain forever. Were they taught correctly? Yes, they were taught correctly. The Son of Man, or the Christ, remains forever. What they missed was this whole dying part in the middle of that. Right, But he does remain forever. But look what they do. They say, hey, the Christ has to remain forever. You're saying that the Son of Man must be lifted up. They knew they used that term of him. And they're saying, who is this Son of Man? So by the question, we can see that they had no concept that Son of Man was a term for deity at that point. Again, Jesus' last public teaching. They did not understand from the Jewish perspective themselves they were wondering what the son of man is who is the son of man what do you mean if you're the christ you remain forever who is the son of man what does that mean so they're not going oh son of man deity son of man deity son of man deity no they're wondering who it is okay it's not until later that we get a, a better idea of what the son of man means and jesus said to them in 35 therefore he said for a little he doesn't answer their question he doesn't tell them who the son of man is directly he goes, and indirectly, he says, Jesus therefore said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that darkness may not overtake you. And who who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, in order that you may become sons of the light. Again, he doesn't answer their question directly. He's given hints. You know, there are hints in the Old Testament that the Messiah was going to be more than just man. There are hints, and we can go back and see those. There's hints throughout Jesus' earthly testimony but that, that the Son of Man is a little bit more. But again, he's emphasizing his humanity. In Mark, we've studied that he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And they're like, they're scratching their heads going, ah, I don't get it. He's given those hints. And then right at the end, as he's on trial behind, before the Sanhedrin, you can see it in Mark, but I'm going to look at the, the, uh, the passage in Matthew 26. There. 2663. Well, let's go back to 62. And the high priest stood up and said, Do you make no answer? What is this that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God to tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus right there invoked the one time in the Old Testament where the Son of Man is clearly something more than just human. And that's Daniel 13. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. In Daniel 13, Daniel sees this vision. He says, I kept looking into the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. So like a son of man. This is one of those hints in the Old Testament that the Messiah was going to be like man, but not really 
man, like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and, he, and <clears throat> was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So in Matthew... When Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, he just invoked the Daniel passage. And Daniel said one like the Son of Man. But Jesus has said throughout his ministry, I'm the Son of Man, the Son of Man. He's used that as a title of himself. And he has said, the Son of Man is going to be coming on the clouds and at the right hand of glory. He invoked the Daniel passage and removed all doubt. He said, yes, I'm a man. But I'm oh so much more than a man. And people go, well, they wouldn't have got that back then. They did. The high priest did get it back in Matthew 26. The high priest tore his robe saying he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, he is deserving of death. Because when he invoked that passage, he just told them, the son of man is more than just a man. The son of man is is God, is equal with God. So yeah, Jesus used throughout his ministry the Son of Man title to emphasize that he was human. But he gave us hints, 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 until right at the last, he kind of slaps us up the face. He says, yeah, I'm human, but I'm so much more. I'm so much more. The Holman Bible Dictionary said, Jesus became one of us, yet he was distinct from us. Only Jesus is Son of Man and Son of God united in one person. St. Augustine in the 4th century said, The Son of God became the Son of Man, that you who were sons of men might be made sons of God. Oh, hallelujah. The Son of Man, a man, but so much more than a man. The God-man, the perfect one who died for us. Back to the main point of the passage in Mark. Follow me. You left everything to follow me. You will get way more back. You're going to get the entire body of Christ. You're going to get eternal life. And along the way, you're going to get persecutions. But follow me. So the question for us this morning, church, is are we willing to follow where he leads? Are we going to be like the apostles that left everything for him and will take what he gives? Or are we going to be like the rich young man who wants to do things my way. I'll follow God's checklist a little bit. I'm going to do things my way and ask God to bless me for doing that. Which are we going to be this morning? Are we going to worry about the worldly's view of success or are we going to be willing to be last for Jesus? Well, I mentioned Paul earlier and he gives us the Christian math. Okay, we've got lots of different maths nowadays. The Christian math on giving up things and getting things is given to us by Paul in Philippians chapter 3, 4 through 11. He starts off with all the worldly side of things, where he was. He says, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. He says, man, I had it all. I had the status. I was first from a Jewish perspective. 
He goes on, though, and he says, But whatever things were gained to me, those I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I had it all. I was at the pinnacle. I was first, but I became last. And everything that I gave up to became last means nothing to me compared to Christ. Church, I hope we're in the same place. And if we're not, I hope we're getting there. Let's pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. And Lord, it challenges us. It pokes us. It pushes us out of our comfort zones. But Lord, I pray that we, your people, would be those who want to follow where you lead. Not that we would want to get you to to bless us where we want to go. Not that we would want to conform you to what our culture says. But that we would follow where you are leading. Lord, and we know we cannot do that on our own. We know that it is only through the strength that you give us through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit that we even have a chance. Lord, you died on that cross and you took us from the kingdom of darkness and gave us an inheritance as your sons, as your daughters. We thank you for that. And we ask that you empower us to walk in a manner worthy of what you've done. Not to earn it, but because we love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.